everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Geek Warning brought to you by the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang here in Boulder, Colorado. We've got the full cast of Escape Collective tech editors with us today, including Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. And Ronan McLaughlin in Ireland. Hi, Ronan. Hi, James. Uh, Dave, I'm a little curious now that you've presumably received and built up your new e-mountain bike and have figured out the dilemma you were talking about the other day about what spares to carry. Mm. What did you end up deciding to do? Uh, I actually uh, actually got a tip from uh, from a, a reader and a a member, and uh, the CO two dilemma was very simply solved with a, a sleeve. I was I was completely overthinking it with a, a double threaded thing, but yeah, you just get a small little bit of plastic sleeve and uh, sit it between the CO two head and the the cartridge and it stops the the co2 head from bottoming out on the cartridge um so yeah uh a minute in uh in cad to to design it and uh 10 minutes to print it and now i have sleeves so peter Horworth. thank you peter yeah and uh chris uh Hirschap, i can't remember is that the last name um he hmm. had also uh he also countered my my assertion that you know going ahead and doing something like that would just take up a bunch of time. And he said he ended up designing a, a holder that went underneath the bottle cage. Uh, he said, I, th- I believe if I remember correctly in 10 minutes, one handed while eating lunch. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, uh, his skills are a little beyond mine in terms of CAD. I mean, that's his, his bread and butter in life, but, uh, yeah, suddenly I can draw circles quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Rodin. Uh, I am curious who you think might win the F1 race this weekend <laughs> at Coda. Didn't know if you're going to go there or not. Um, <laughs> is, it, is there really a question mark? I mean, it's been a fairly dominant season, so I would imagine that's going to continue. Uh, I'll, I'll go and check out though, just to be, I'll, I'll go and take a look myself just to make sure order is not resumed, but continued. Just to verify. Just to verify yeah, with my own eyes. Mm, I expect a full report when you come back. Mm, can't promise it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, back to bike stuff. We've got a particularly interesting list of things to talk about today. Uh, Lauf, that Icelandic company that has specialized in gravel bikes, uh, they've just announced their first road bike that I'm super eager to ride. Uh, we've got a secret, but maybe not so secret, drivetrain collaboration, maybe, between Classified and TRP. Uh, Ingrid Components is also diving deeper into the road drivetrain market with a new shifter. Maybe. Uh, we're also going to, de- well, yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, probably, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we're also going to debate whether the rider needs to adapt to a new bike or if it should be the other way around. And we'll chat a little bit about how we set up test bikes because that's something that people have been wondering about. And then finally, we'll wrap up this week's episode with a little PSA on safety in the backcountry that has been, well... Let's just say I have reasons for being concerned about that now, and we'll get to that in a minute. Oh. All right. First up in the news this week is this new road bike from Lauf. So it's called the Uthald. Uh, Uthald? Uthald. Sorry. My Icelandic is not very good, uh, but it's supposedly Icelandic for endurance, and it includes some rather interesting features, I think, that are look to be largely borrowed from the Seagull gravel bike that Dave and I were so fond of uh, last year when we tested it. So Lauf is leaning pretty hard on the compliance theme here. 
Uh, they're saying that the Utald frame set module itself, it's about 70% more compliant up front and like 350% more compliant out back uh, than some big brands out there, although it's maybe a little bit of a fuzzy math going on there. Uh, it does have room for big tires. It's apparently kind of aero, but not really aero. It does not use headset cable routing, and they're quite adamant about that. Uh, the handling's intentionally more stable than, uh, than what we usually find with road racing bikes. Uh, trail figures are in the mid-60s. And it's kind of light, but definitely not super light. Uh, the claimed weight for a frame is 985 grams for a painted medium. Uh, and as we've now come to expect from Lauf, it's also quite aggressively priced. Uh, a complete SRAM Force Axis build, for example, comes in at 4,700 US dollars. Uh, I am intrigued. Dave, what do you think? Well, I mean, to be to be clear, that 4,700 dollars gets you, yeah, full Force Group set with Zip 303S wheels uh yeah plus like what am i looking at yeah full fsa cockpit like it's all really Pretty nice solid. stuff and a dual-sided power meter like the yeah the shram force yeah chainring power meter that's incredible value pretty killer um, and then they've got one yeah sure you can get one with shram rival wireless with a single-sided power meter and that's what's Thirty-five hundred dollars? Yeah, okay, that's that's an incredible value bike. But uh, yeah, I mean, this looks really good. Like it's, uh, as you say, it's definitely heavily inspired by their own Siegler design. And what stands out most to me there is that it's got that kind of distinctive slacked-out seat tube that that looks to kind of uh, almost cancel either the seat post over the rear wheel, um, which is realistically how they're how they're achieving so much of that uh, compliance that they claim. Yeah, they're using some other tricks too. They're talking about um, like a really flattened top tube and then flattened seat stays and the seat stays are dropped. Uh, and much like a lot of other companies say, when you do that, uh, when you hit a bump, it sort of forces the seat tube to flex. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, the other thing that they're pretty pretty firm on is using a regular 27.2 seat post with a regular uh, external seat post clamp. But they're actually saying that that's necessary to get the kind of flex that they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also totally normal threaded bottom bracket. Like, it's pretty darn normal. Yeah. Anything weird with the crank? Because the, the Seagull was one of the first bikes to go to the wide the wide spacing. I'm not seeing no. anything no. unusual no, here. No mention of that here. Okay. Uh, the the chainstays are not crazy short. Uh, I think they said something like 405, yep. which given the tire clearance is actually quite short. Um, mm-hmm. They're saying it has clearance for 35, so that is pretty impressive. Um, but they are running longer front centers. I can't remember what those numbers are. And like I said, the trail dimensions are in like the mid sixties and they're making it intentionally more stable. But their argument is that a bike that is kind of more settled and predictable through corners and maybe not quite as twitchy and certainly more compliant. Uh, they're saying that that makes for a faster bike because you not only have more traction, but you're kind of less beat up and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, that's kind of how I've been. With my road bikes, certainly as I've gotten older, um, but I'm very curious to see what this feels like in person. Yeah, uh, I mean, so far all we've seen is photos of it, but uh, I will say, from a traditional sense, from a traditional road sense, it's not the prettiest looking bike. I'm, <laughs> it's I'm glad you weird. found a way to say that because yeah. I was trying to find a way to say that. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, beauty is always in the eye of the beholder. But I mean, mm. the Seagull is also very odd looking in in a, in a traditional sense. But I guess road is a more traditional market and more aesthetically driven, generally speaking, than than gravel is. So 
it will be interesting to see the uptake on this. I think, though, to be fair, Life's product catalog, generally speaking, has maybe been divisive in terms of aesthetics. Like yes. it's, uh, you know, even even the fork and that is, there. I always had the impression they're very much playing to the connoisseur rather than playing to the mass market. If that is that, does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Well. I, th- I think they're b- being pretty smart too, because they are diving into what is essentially an incredibly saturated market, and I feel like they're doing that with a, at least what comes off on paper as a pretty compelling play. One with the pricing, mm-hmm. um, two the fact that they're just sort of different. It's definitely not a cookie cutter bike, um, but three leaning really heavily on this comfort thing, um, and then just the fact that again, like coming back to that idea that they're different, like it's just going to go. It's going to appeal to sort of the counterculture person who doesn't want, you know, a, a, another Domani or another Roubaix or something like that. Yeah. Um, and one thing about that Siegla, Dave, as far as how that bike looked kind of weird, mm. I would say that um, that bike, if you ran it with the Lauf suspension fork with that leaf, that carbon fiber leaf spring thing, it almost looked better because in that configuration, the fork blades and the seat tube were kind of more parallel to each other. Mm. Like it kind of looked more cohesive, I and would argue. And you're so distracted by the fork, you didn't look at the seat tube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that too. Um, but yeah, this one's maybe not the most visually cohesive design. Yeah. Um, but I guess if it rides as well as they are claiming it does, mm. then maybe it doesn't matter. Because yeah. I mean, certainly I found that bikes that are that ride softer, like they maybe don't always feel as fast, like under power or when climbing and stuff like that. Yeah. But I've always found that I feel like I can descend a lot faster on them because they just feel stuck to the ground. Yeah, and and mm-hmm. on like you know anytime there's you know inconsistent surfaces on smooth terrain, you're more comfortable just to keep the power down on such a bike as well. So yeah, uh, yeah, Ronan. I feel like we're sort of verging into the conversation that we're planning for later in the podcast here, are we? <laughs> almost, almost. Yeah. Except this is road bikes, and we're we're probably going to head in a, an off road sense later, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, but. but uh, yeah, um, I will say I'm I'm excited by this bike. Like the Siegler was probably the standout bike for me uh, last year that I tested. Uh, just when you look at the value for money and the way it rode, uh, it was just a, a very enjoyable experience and very impressive for for what you got. Uh, and this looks to be on a similar recipe. And yeah, I while I I'm not super fond of how it looks in the photos, I'm uh, I think everything else seems super intriguing so yeah certainly uh one i'm intrigued to see a review on and uh, i'll might try fight you on that one james beauty beauty will of course be in the eye of the beholder but i kind of wish given how interesting this bike is and looking briefly through the photos here i kind of wish that they'd done a bit more on the on the paintwork the even you know the life decal and the down tube and all there i don't know maybe that starts adding cost to the whole thing but it's um, it's sort of like their theme that's kind of mm, just what they do it's like mm, solid yeah. color with a single Lauf logo yeah. on the seat yeah. tube and that's kind of it yeah there's mm-hmm. there's very little uh money spent contract in contracting uh graphic designers with their bikes like like many other bike companies tend to do so uh yeah very simple um i mean the the paint on the siegler from memory it was like super simple super subtle but it was at least nice quality and you know it had like a nice yeah. a nice you know polished finish to it so uh, it was yeah. I, th- I think it was like glossy black with red lettering or something i think that's yeah. all it was yeah um 
So one thing looking at the spec sheet, though, that has me scratching my, or maybe not scratching my head, but really uh, curious about why they left this the way that it is. Um, so the least expensive one is SRAM Rival. The middle tier one is SRAM Force. And you would expect that the high-end one would just be SRAM Red, right? Mm. Seems pretty clear, right? They have mm. a price listed for it. They've got some other specs. But everything where you would see SRAM is instead listed as TBA. Mm. Why mm. is that not just a SRAM Red bike? Because that makes me wonder if SRAM's got something coming. Available in summer 2024, while the other models are pretty much available now. Uh, I think you're right, James. Uh, I, I believe that's probably <coughs> also going to be a SRAM bike. They just can't announce what those details look like. Or they're being smart, and if they know that something is coming, they're just not committing to offering the flagship build just yet because they don't yeah. want they don't want to have a bunch of bikes sitting on the shelf. Yeah, yeah, and that that seventy five hundred US is a projected price. They say approximately that, and approximately seven point two kilograms, which is what's that seven hundred grams less than the the Force model. So, yeah. Anyway, mm. interesting. Mm, I wonder. <laughs> we'll find mm. out soon enough. Speaking of drivetrains, uh, Ronan, you, well, I guess we can kind of say right now that you kind of kicked the beehive a little bit with this one, um, <laughs> but uh, you recently published an article that was based on some photos that we had received from the Taichung Bike Show uh, mm -hmm. that depicted a collaboration between TRP and Classified for a new road, I guess also gravel drivetrain, um, that set up combined the classified two-speed internal rear hub that we are now pretty familiar with at this point, um, but also with a TRP shifter brake lever and all new rear derailleur that we previously had not heard about. And none of those things would be entirely surprising, I guess. Uh, TRP already has a mountain bike drivetrain that they are working on you know, finishing actually getting out to the market. Uh, so they do have some experience in this. They have their own cassettes and so on, so on and so forth. Um, First question I'm wondering is, does this sort of thing make sense and why? Um, does this sort of thing make sense? I think, first of all, it's important to say that that article didn't just come from those couple of photos that we uh, that, that were sent to us. Uh, that's something that has been sort of rumored for a long time. A lot of patents uh, existed, submitted and published by Classified, and a lot of, well, probably not a lot, but certainly some conversations we've had with industry insiders suggested that this may be something that Classified are, are working on. And even went as far as, you know, someone telling us that actually they had seen uh, a Classified drivetrain component in their in their hands. Uh, so, you know, when these photos came along, that then was, well, here is what this thing actually looks like. Now we've finally seen it. I'd, I'd put it to classified in the past, you know, are these the next steps? And, you know, you were, you were given the sort of usual response when you inquire about patents that, you know, not all patents make it to market and, and so on and so forth. And then when we, when we published this article last week, um, I did, so we did reach out to classified and we got a response from classified the next day, which is probably important to actually, um, read that, uh, statement from, from classified here, just, to, to clarify things up from, from their end and what classified 
tell us is the next step in Classified's journey is integration with existing group set suppliers. Classified has an open-minded and inclusive integration policy and continuously strives for better for the best rider experience. Classified does not offer complete group sets and is a supplier of power-shipped hubs and premium wheels. As for does it actually make sense? Um, I, th- I mean, what what has been the drawback to the classified system so far is the lack of integration um, and and the reliance on a shifter button additionally on your on your handlebar somewhere other than integrated into your your lever body. And if that integration can happen, that that I know for Dave. That would probably be a big step for you. It would also be a big step Absolutely. for me. So from that yep. point of view, yes. Yeah, it was my biggest complaint of the system. But uh, what's interesting here is with that TRP system, I'd say that actually falls in line with that statement from them in that they're mm. still uh, a supplier of a hub. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's TRP's own product. It's It's not a... Yeah, it doesn't look to be like a whole classified slash trp drivetrain that's exclusive you know only works with the two brands it looks like it's it's a trp is doing a wireless drivetrain and they're offering integration with classified system so Mm -hmm. uh i think that yeah what classified have have said to you still stands but yes it doesn't discredit the fact that there's this collaboration coming out with a and that TRP is entering the drop bar space. What what also I guess um, confirms that to me is that the photos we we shared on Escape Collective and what were shared with us do still show that show Classified's wireless handlebar unit, the one that goes in the the bar end to to act as the uh, what would you call it the, trans- the transmitter. Bonder transmitter um so yeah the that still seems to be present and i'm guessing there's just a, a bit more integration at the shifter level that then plugs into that so yeah i mean it doesn't it doesn't look like there's anything majorly different um versus classified's current offerings in in what we've shared here uh it's just yeah the big news here is that trp uh are getting into the game yeah and i think like the the receiver on the end of the handbars wouldn't you know that that that's never really been the issue. It's you know most handlebars nowadays are compatible with the DA2 is it JC130 um, connection junction box. So you know that that that's not really an issue. It's it's more building it into the lever. So if if that transpires to be accurate, then that that would be huge. Um, obviously, TRP developing a wireless group set uh, is is big news. Also, um, I think the the telling thing for me will be. Does TRP also offer a front derailleur, or is there no front derailleur in their in their system? Um, because certainly the the advertising materials or the publicity materials that the the shots included, um, you know, there, there's obviously no mention of a front derailleur there because it's a classified setup. But does a front derailleur exist separately? We we just don't know that. I'm gonna guess no. Yeah, uh, mainly because yeah. that is historically the most challenging part of developing a group set. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at a situation where even a company like SRAM, I mean, people like to make fun of SRAM for their front shifting performance as compared to Shimano, but the reality is SRAM does the best that they can giving the patent landmines that are out there. And if a company like SRAM with as much engineering resources and development power that they have still comes up a little short compared to Shimano, then you'd have to think a company like TRP with 
much less resources, presumably, uh, wouldn't necessarily want to tackle that. I, I would also say that uh, if you look at where the market potential is for them, I would think it's more in the the gravel space, which is already one by, and TRP is already in the mountain bike market with a wide range one by drivetrain. Uh, it is mechanical, but uh, yeah, I would say it, it makes far more sense for them to go after like that SRAM Explore slash GRX market than it does for them to try get into the the oversaturated road market. Like we've seen FSA, for example, who actually have some pretty big resources behind them, kind of fail to to really get any traction in the road space. And they've been trying for quite a few years. And I mean, that's not a small company. And TRP is not a small company. It's Tektro Racing Products. They're a very big OE player, a big manufacturer. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd think that historically they've, I mean, Tektro does exist on a lot of road bikes, but I would say it's, it's, they're probably, uh, thinking more on the off-road space. The, the other thing is the response that this post has got in terms of, you know, commenters and, and on Discord and that saying, this is fantastic. This is what we want to see. Um, and, you know, and going back to classified statement integration with group set manufacturers, then you know the the big question mark for most people will be what about Shimano and SRAM, um, and I think perhaps this might be a bit of a wake up call for Shimano and SRAM, and that this is actually something people are considering. This is something that people are getting excited about. This is maybe something we should consider integrating. Whether or not that'll happen, I still have my doubts. You know, Classified may be open minded to such integrations, but that. That doesn't mean they'll happen. Uh, those integrations depend on Shimano and SRAM wanting them to happen. Yeah, just just knowing how Shimano and SRAM have operated, particularly over many years in the past now, I would guess the likelihood of Shimano offering some sort of integration with Classified to be pretty much zero. Um, it seems a little bit more likely that SRAM would potentially do something, maybe, um, but even that just doesn't seem super, super likely because again, the thing for me is more like, you know, from their perspectives, do they have much to gain by partnering with classified on a drivetrain system? Because it almost kind of weakens their position because they are the two road drivetrain behemoths and to link up with a company like classified almost is to admit some sort of weakness. Well, it's that, but it's also like SRAM, for example, they're, they're very insistent that you use their entire drivetrain. For, for correct usage, especially at an OE level. It's like if if the manufacturer wants a warranty, you have to have all SRAM components uh, as in terms of running gear, you know, so chain, cassette, chain ring. Uh, classified only works with Classified's own cassette. So in order to use a Classified system, you have to not run uh, a single brand of, of running gear. So I think there are some barriers there that may may present as, uh, as struggles, but... Yeah, hopefully they can overcome some of those uh, some of those barriers because, yeah, as Ronan and I have have found, it's the weakest point in the classified system currently is the fact that you have to have an ex an extra external shifter, like a little sprint button. So yep, yep. As if we didn't need more excitement going on in the road bike drivetrain market, uh, the Bespoke Show in Dresden, Germany, recently gave us a little preview of. Uh, Ingrid Components new shifter design, which would presumably go along with their rear derailleur. Dave, do we mm. know anything about this at all? Yeah, uh, European Bike Project, uh, which is kind of a, a social media account, and they they do some posts for some other websites. Uh, they 
they covered the the new mountain bike shifter. So this is an official product. Uh, Ingrid now have a complete drivetrain solution. So they had the derailers before. James, you photographed that at uh, at Made, a very cool raster color derailleur, which they they do in various other colors. Uh, they have cassettes, they have cranks, they have chain rings, they have spindles, they have bottom brackets. Uh, and now there is a mountain bike shifter. And it's basically a single paddle uh, that you push forward and pull backwards, or you kind of click it from the side, uh, use your, your thumb to kind of push it out. So it's a, it's a bit of a, an interesting design that. Um, neither of us have got our hands on it yet, but... I mean, it appears to work. Uh, but what's most interesting is that they've got kind of the same idea, but in a drop bar shifter prototyped. Uh, and that shifter actually even has a integrated light at the top of its hood. So uh, pretty intriguing design. But um, from my point of view, it's uh, very reminiscent of uh, mid-2000 Shimano mountain bike dual control shifters where the, the brake lever would um, waddle like a penguin. Uh, this (laughs) the return of the flippy shifter yeah the flippy shifters uh the road shifter is basically the same idea so you the whole brake lever swings inboard uh to shift one direction and then you push the brake lever in the opposite direction to shift the other direction i mean the motion sounds like it could be okay when you're on the hoods Mm. i'm not really sure how well that would work when you're in the drops yeah. So, I mean, you're basically using the back of your fingers, almost like your nails to push outward. And in my mind, that's a pretty unnatural movement. And that, yeah, I, I'm imagining forearm pump if you're shifting enough. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I mean, it's it's really just a mock-up at the moment. And I, I guess, yeah, time will tell whether it ever makes it into, into production. But more options are cool. And yeah, Ingrid is a, a pretty neat company doing, you know, really high end mechanical stuff. So, I mean, that's that in itself is, is worth following. Uh, I certainly wouldn't mind getting my hands on that, or I guess hand, because there's no front shifter. <laughs> um, but I certainly wouldn't mind getting my hands on that thing, because as you said, Dave, the, the design is, well, the, like the mechanical designs, pretty novel. Uh, and as someone who used those flippy shifters for a while, I would be I'm very interested to know how it feels in comparison to those. Um, but uh, maybe the bigger thing is I'm wondering what part of the market this is going to be targeted at, because I guess there already is kind of a unique kind of buyer that would be drawn to Ingrid stuff in general. And because it is quite industrial looking. Yeah. Um, and then the shifter is maybe not the most elegant Thing that I've seen, even even as a mock-up, it's just mm. it, it's almost kind of like a cyclops sort of looking thing. It's kind of it kind of looks like it's got a big eye on top of it. It's just a mm. little weird. Mm. Um, but if it works well, then and if it presents a a another high-end mechanical option, then that certainly is going to appeal to some people. Yeah. So Ingrid, like I would say, their their core market is like wealthy ultra endurance cyclists. Uh, in terms of. You know, typically where I've seen their product appear most, like their cranks are on a lot of like really high end kind of gravel bikes slash bikepacking bikes. Uh, yeah, they're often seen in like events like Badlands and under athletes like that. Um, yeah, so it's it's you know it's it's solid, dependable, rebuildable components is kind of what their their thing is. And this road this shifter with the integrated light, I could see it very much being that ultra endurance cyclist that. Uh, you know, being linked up to a dyno hub and the fact that it's at the lever, those lights means that your your handlebar space is is free to have bags, basically. 
so yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of uh, that market. But yeah, it will be interesting to see how it goes in other markets. And then with that inter- with that integrated light, I mean, it just makes me wonder: is okay? So the shifter is mechanical. Um, the light obviously has to be powered by something. So mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a, a battery hidden away inside the lever somewhere, or no. is dynamo powered? Yeah, or, I think it's dynamo powered or or similar external battery. I would I would have to assume there's a a wire coming out through the shifter into something into something else because you're probably going to have the same light on the left hand shifter as well or the left hand brake lever. So it'll be a dual light combo. Uh, so yeah, I I can only imagine that this is designed to be linked with the dynamo and they might offer a a battery as well but yeah uh be interesting to see as well whether they end up making it hydraulic or not yeah and like and I, there has to be some sort of way to aim the light because there's gonna be so much variation as far as where people want to have their levers and mm. you know is this what if someone wants to turn them in turn their hoods in super narrow super narrow to get all arrow like are you gonna yep. be able to have your light pointed in the right direction. Lots of questions here. Lots yeah. of questions. Yeah. And, you know, obviously prototype, just a concept. So who knows? Maybe they'll decide that the light is too hard basket with various different hood positions and too limiting with where you can place the hood. So uh, either way, it's it's kind of, it's cool to see uh, such thinking because that is like nothing else we've seen. Yeah, and like we've said, more competition in a space like that seems to always be good. Like, I definitely like seeing some innovative thought there. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's wrap up with today's news segment. It's a little bit shorter than usual today. Uh, kind of want to leave some more room for some more discussion here. Um, uh, Dave, I want to start out with your recent review of that specialized Epic World Cup, uh, which, to be clear, I wrote. I wrote also, um, and. Not surprisingly, there were a bunch of comments left by Escape Collective members on that one. Uh, And one uh, caught my eye in particular because that one came from someone who actually owns one of those bikes themselves. And they were suggesting that uh, it is a very different bike, but also that you it's different enough and unique enough that you really need to adapt your riding style to it in order to be able to extract the most performance out of it. but that sort of just gets me wondering. I've ridden an awful lot of mountain bikes at this point, and I certainly will say that I maybe adjust certain things to a bike depending on the application, the riding style, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure I've ever really felt like I needed to like completely change how I ride in order to sort of adapt to a particular bike suspension performance. Though, what, where are you at with that? Uh, I agree that there was a learning curve to that bike and I spent long enough on it that I, I feel like I, I got the hang of it and I could ride it pretty quickly. Like I actually did get some PRs on local trails with that bike, which kind of tells you its capabilities. Um, I was also incredibly fatigued after that, but, uh, yeah, so, um, I, I agree with that, but I think when you're talking about a mountain bike that actually has quite a limited window of use. The person that owns this bike is probably also going to own other mountain bikes as well. Uh, especially someone that's taking their racing seriously, they'll probably have a bike with more travel for rougher uh, endurance races. And then this might be like the short track bike. And I think that in itself is a problem is if you're having to adapt your riding style 
to to get the best out of this bike, then there's going to be an adaption period going back to your other bike. Uh, and I think that's reflected by what we've seen with the uh, specialized factory races is that some, like Cena Fry, didn't use the World Cup bike at all in the season. Uh, she just stuck with the, the Epic Evo because that's what she said was most comfortable to her. And then uh, some other riders decided to stick with the Epic World Cup for the entire season. And that's kind of rare for a rider to not switch bikes like that. And it, it does tell me that there is kind of this, this yeah, hot, this uh, progressive <laughs> learning curve to this bike that, that doesn't really, uh, isn't conducive to switching back and forth. With those with those riders who aren't swapping, who are, who aren't using the new bike, is that is that that they 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 couldn't master? The, and forgive me because my knowledge in this space is very limited. I haven't yet got to reading your your review. But is that do you think that their skill set isn't suited to this bike, and they could not develop that skill set, or is that is it something entirely different? No, I I think it's probably that they felt like they could be more efficient on. A longer travel bike with a more active suspension is my guess because a lot of those other riders uh victor koretsky who had a pretty stellar season he won quite a few world cups towards the end of the season uh he mostly rode the epic evo with the exception of the olympic test event where he was on that new world cup um a modified version of the world cup uh and and yeah so him on the epic evo uh towards the end he, he most of his wins were won with um uh, RockShox flight attendant, a prototype electronic suspension on that bike, but longer travel. Uh, and I think that's kind of telling that if he's winning the races on the longer travel bike, then yeah, I think he has a lot of faith in that longer travel bike. Well, so speaking of Victor Koretsky, I guess one thing that I really couldn't help but notice. So Dave, you mentioned just now that that he that he rode that Olympic test event on a modified version of that bike. Yep. And the key modification that he made, in, in addition to some other drivetrain stuff and whatever, was he uh, he ran a remote rear shock lockout, which that bike normally does not come with because it is designed to... Mm, I don't know if I saw... The photos I saw, it didn't show a remote rear shock lockout. It showed a Did it go only to the front? It just showed the front, yeah, which means there's no mm. brain in the front. Um, which is one of my complaints of the bike was that the brain kind of just the brain front fork kind of made the bike feel uh, more fatiguing than I wanted it to and, and kind of had some weird attributes on when you're climbing. Um, so yeah, his his look to be uh, dumbed down in that sense. Uh, okay, yeah. but still still stock in the rear then. It it looked like it might be. There was some kind of crazy wiring going on on that bike, which uh, I don't know if that was just custom shifters or something far far more sophisticated than that so who knows maybe there is a little stealthy remote lockout that he's running um hard to tell but uh yeah it's either way it's it's, a, it's just such an interesting topic this bike because uh i was speaking with uh guy kestevan who also reviewed this bike and uh him and i were going back and forth over the last few months and he was pestering me to get this review done because he was eager to see what i thought of it uh and one thing that stood out to me is he said, this is the hardest bike he's ever reviewed. Um, and I kind of agree with him. Like I deliberated over writing this for literal months. And it's because no matter how you set the suspension, there was always a compromise to it. Uh, and I think, yeah, fundamentally, that's it's not often that you come across a bike that's so specific in its ways that in a single ride, you you find flaws in it 
and then you change it to you can change it to fix those flaws and then new flaws come in um so it's i don't know i'm still i'm still lost on it like i wrote six thousand words for this review and i'm still <laughs> kind of like did i actually like explain myself very well maybe i needed more words um so yeah anyway i mean i i edited that piece and i would say that there were plenty of words in there yeah <laughs> Yeah. So, and um, yeah, I can understand why Ronan, you haven't read it yet because uh, it's a 6,000 word bound on bike I'm, I'm kind of wondering if it's the best place for me to start. Uh. <laughs> Maybe not. Well, Ronan, let me ask you this though, on that, on that same subject. I mean, so this is obviously a little bit of an extreme case because we're talking about a very unique full suspension mountain bike with a pretty unusual rear suspension setup. Um, but I, I can certainly see how this question would apply to uh, a road bike or a TT bike or anything like that. Um, granted, a lot of those things aren't necessarily as extreme in terms of differences from the norm. But <clears throat> have you ever found that you've needed to really adapt your riding style to get the most out of a bike? Um, I think it comes back to one of the questions I was going to ask you guys because I knew you were, you were going to bring up this conversation was – you know, sh- and it comes back to my understanding of mountain bike, which is very limited. But should you, you know, design a bike to be the fastest possible, and then the riders have to adapt, or should you design it around what quite often happens on the road, what the fastest riders thinks is best, and then everybody else adapts? And you know, I think that's kind of you know we so often hear about X brand work with such and such a pro. Uh, from such and such a team and they developed this new bike and you know this is the end result um and you know the the, the question always in my mind is well first of all are, are are pros the best uh for feedback for for brands to develop from and obviously there's a lot more goes into it than just the pro feedback but it's certainly one element and then the, the other question i was going to have for you guys around this world cup was you know is is that is that a bike that's developed to be as fast as possible and actually it's um you know you're you're talking about with you you fix one issue and you find another is that more a reflection and i don't mean this the wrong way i'm trying to i'm trying to skirt around the subject is that more a reflection of your how dare you writing a writing ability versus the very best (laughs) in the world (laughs) uh i would say even specialized think that this bike uh it's it's officially designed to replace their hardtail and they say that if anything it's actually designed more for the amateur market because it's professional riders are riding on terrain that is so far beyond what an amateur race would typically be held on uh and that these riders are hitting these things at such greater speeds uh that they they actually could use and often do need a bike with like more suspension travel and more active suspension than what a lot of amateur races are would would need when they're racing on a, a smoother terrain uh course and typically not hitting such obstacles at warp speed um so yeah i think it's it's just such a bizarre thing for the company to have a bike that's literally has world cup in its name and was pitched as being a solution for pro races and for them to kind of wind back a bit and say well actually it's 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 more beneficial to the amateur than our pro riders so don't don't follow what our pros are doing here. Um, yeah, but Epic mm. Amateur just doesn't have quite the same ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing the specialized Epic Weekend Warrior. <laughs> uh, going back to your question, James, I'm, 
I'm not sure if I've, I, I don't think it really translates onto the road, does it? I'm not sure if I've ever properly had to adapt my riding style, but I definitely think different bikes get more out of me than than others. Um, and that's not always, I think I referenced it in that speed machine or time team team machine review I did last week. Um, <laughs> how that maybe if I was, if I was, purely looking to spend my money on a bike that feels immediately fast and feels immediately enjoyable um that that might not be the direction to go but if i was looking for a performance bike that had me descending faster or whatever then it it, you know something along those lines would be the the way to go and and how those two don't match up and it kind of comes back to the old you know 23 mil tires at 120 psi versus 28 mil tires at 60 psi and while the the wider, softer tires might not feel faster, they yeah. they actually tend to be faster and also tend to give you better grip on that for for descending and cornering and whatever. Yeah, I would say like this bike. Speaking of this bike, is it in anything rough? It is faster than a hardtail. So in that sense, Specialized are, are true to their claims. Uh, but in anything rough, it's in my mind, it's also not as quick or uh, yeah, it's just not as uh controlled as a bike with more active suspension um and that more controlled bike means when you get fatigued and you screw up there's just you know the bike's going to save you and and keep you on track then whereas the epic world cup i feel like it's uh there's times where you break traction where where you wouldn't expect to on a full suspension so um yeah i think it's both i think it both is a bike that makes you feel faster and you jump on it you're like wow this has to be faster because it feels faster um and then i also think it's a bike that in theory on the right track it actually is faster but it's a what would that right track be the right track in my mind is is any anywhere where you'd think i want a hardtail for this uh and it kind of is an even narrower gap because if it's say a very hilly with steep climb course say a grass course with smooth grass and not a lot of times where your traction would would break uh or where you're getting rattled to bits then i still think a hardtail is better because a hardtail is a kilogram lighter it's even more hardtail like when you pedal um so yeah you kind of need like that hardtail terrain plus rocks and then right it, it it's like a mix of mostly smooth with some chunky stuff tossed in yeah yeah so um so yeah and i think like so basically Olympic- an olympic course Olympic course is a perfect example because it's a manufactured course for spectators uh, with with very little natural terrain where they've added technical features and rough features in amongst like a parkland basically. Uh, and yeah, so if you think about every Olympic course that's been in the history of mountain bike Olympic courses, it, that bike makes sense. Hmm. They should have called it, well, I would say I they should have called can. it then the, yeah. I, I was just going to say they should have called it the Epic Olympics, but they can't. No. No. Don't Colnago have a Master Olympic? I don't think so. I mean, you definitely can't use Olympic anything without licensing. Yeah. And that license costs either, a lot of money. <laughs> either way, either way, moving on. But mm. speaking of test bikes, uh, we got another interesting question from another Escape Collective member recently. Uh, they were asking us about our process for setting up test bikes. Uh, specifically, this question came from. Sorry, user... I thought you were talking about my podcast. Too. 
Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll talk about that later, Ronan. Don't worry. We'll get to that. Uh, this one was submitted by uh, Escape Collective user Nmuley, N-M-U-L-E-Y, uh, said, quote, one question for the hosts. When you get a review bike or wheels, drivetrain, et cetera, what do you do to the product to make it yours? I kind of assume that your default riding experience is with the gear you own, and when you get something different, you somehow take that into account. For example, do you strip a chain of lube and wax it for a review bike? Do you use a reference tire? Same brake pad material? Would it be? Uh, I would be curious to know what process you go through when you receive a new piece of equipment to test. Uh, Ronan, why don't we start with you on that one? Uh, I'm going to start at the end and sometimes have to worry, wind back and figure out what the spec is. Uh, was when it arrived with me to try to <laughs> to wrap up a review and get it back to the the way it was delivered to me because I think there's value in both reviewing the bike as sold as spec as delivered and also as I would treat the bike if if it were my own uh, if I was you know getting ready to race this thing or or train on a daily basis or you know whatever event you may be training for obviously. You know, anybody who listens to this podcast is going to know I'm, I have, you know, I, I enjoy tinkering with bikes and setups and trying to find gains wherever I can. And as such, tires, uh, tires are probably, you know, fairly, fairly often changed. Um, uh, but I you could even go as far as, you know, cassettes, um, handlebars have changed on bikes. Saddles is a fairly common one. I, I typically ride the saddle that's delivered. And then do most of the review on a on a saddle I know I I like, um, and then convert back for sort of final thoughts. Um, but yeah, like I've I've gone as far as changing wheels, tires, the the whole works effectively, uh, except group set and, and frame. Yeah, for me it's uh it's a case of it depends, and I think the the cheaper the bike, the less likely I'm to change things. Um, Specifically, like I'm thinking, like right now, I've got a, a Trek Demane AL, uh, which has Claris components on it. Uh, so it's a pretty entry level bike. Uh, and that, in my mind, the person buying that bike isn't going to change, isn't immediately going to change like to carbon wheels that cost as much as the bike. So I'm not going to put those carbon wheels on that bike. I'm going to try test that bike in its stock form as well as possible. Um, but yeah, typically I do run a consistent saddle across all bikes because the saddle makes an enormous difference to ride quality. A, a saddle can make a bigger difference to ride quality than any, any frame layup change can. Uh, so I think that's, for me, that's one of the things that I, I, I try to always do. Um, but I also, as you say, Brian, I also try to run the stock saddle to get an opinion of that. So yeah, I think it, it does depend on what, what changes. Um, I do have a control wheel set that I try to, put into certain bikes but again on you know when you're talking about such an entry-level bike um the stock wheels are, are a hugely important part to the bike so it's not something that i want to ignore from the review i think quite often also i'm changing components to sort of extract a feeling for the frame rather than the entire bike uh, and that that quite often helps from from that that uh, aspect um and then there's also as you mentioned you know adding on a set of wheels that costs as much as the bike. Sometimes there are wheels or different components that are actually on review rather than the entire bike itself. And, yeah. and that then calls for a change. If it's a disc brake set of wheels, I, I, I don't actually have a disc brake bike of my own. Mm. So that, you know, that then inevitably calls for putting those wheels onto a review bike. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'd say my process is pretty similar to what the two of you already described. I almost always start with the bike, talking complete bikes anyway, that is. I almost always start with a complete bike as is, uh, do a few rides that way and kind of uh, gather my initial impressions and initial thoughts on it like that. Uh, and then from there, usually what I do is I invariably end up kind of with a bunch of questions that I have. And then I'll often swap components at that point to try and answer those questions. Um, and I do often try and go with uh, reference saddle and reference at least tires, um, just because those do have such a big difference on stuff. Um, and then kind of go from there. I definitely don't bother to like, you know, redo the chain loop and stuff like that, because I really don't think that oh, has a- Oh, I do. <laughs> Dave, Dave, no doubt you do that as well. Uh, it depends on the bike, but yeah, I, I, I definitely do for mountain bikes because the stock factory grease just becomes a mess within the first ride and becomes distracting. So I actually do degrease some of the brand new bikes. Um, wow. Yeah. I don't specifically, uh, SRAM equipped off-road bikes, gravel mountain bikes, cause they're, they're factory grease. Um, all Very of thick. our terrain around here is, is sandy. And so that'll be the most distracting thing on the ride. If I, if I don't degrease those bikes before I ride them. Ah, fair enough. All right. I guess most of the terrain that I have, at least off-road anyway, is more dusty than sandy. So for yeah. me, it, that doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. But I think overall, it's not really a, a, like a, any real secret as far as what we do to evaluate that stuff. Again, it's pretty, I think it's pretty straightforward. You know, just check it out as is, uh, figure out as much as you can as it is, and then try and answer some questions by swapping out wherever you need. Yeah. But I think fundamentally the thing we don't do is, well, at least what I don't do is I don't try to make each test bike feel like my own bike that I already own. Uh, I think, you know, each test bike has its unique uh, attributes and, and a market that it's aimed at. So I'm not trying to turn like every endurance road bike into feeling like a, a heavily dropped down race bike. I'm trying to test it as an endurance road bike. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's an adventure style gravel bike, I'm, I'm not trying to turn that into a, a racy feeling gravel bike. Again, I'm trying to keep it an adventure gravel bike. So, uh, I think that comes with the experience is being able to ride these bikes for their intended market and being able to assess them in that way. Uh, and that just comes from riding a lot of bikes. Uh, and that extends to the components on those bikes. James, I know, I know you definitely feel this way and, and Ronan, you probably do with certain certain group sets, but like I know exactly how a Shimano Altegra 12-speed group set works and runs and should feel. Uh, and so I'm not testing that. I'm not paying attention to that when I jump on a new bike that has that same group set that I've already ridden on five other bikes. I'm focusing on the frame and the wheels, the handlebar shape. I'm not caring about how the shifting and the brakes work. Uh, so yeah, in that sense, we're definitely not changing brake pad compounds because in my mind, I know what those brakes can do and, and don't do. And, uh, and when they differ from what I expect of them, then I'm looking into what's happened. You know, maybe, maybe some oils leaked on them in transport or something like that. And I can diagnose it, but that's, that's typically why you don't hear us complain in reviews about, uh, the shifting ticking or something like that is because we took that, care of that. <laughs> We take care of it. We know how to fix these things. Uh, and when they do arise, we we know how to fix them. Um, and yeah, on on the rare occasions that that the shifting is not right and we're not able to fix it, then you'll probably hear that in the review that we couldn't fix it and that the that stuff proved to be more finicky than it should be. Right? Mm, uh, <clears throat> I noticed that you both have like 
mentioned the group set on you know quite often in reviews and i often find myself just thinking that our reviews are not known for their uh for being efficient or short their brevity uh, they're usually quite <laughs> they're usually quite lengthy uh and while i often will start including something about the group set it's like you know, SRAM, Red, Axis is how old now? It's mm-hmm. it, what more can we add to that conversation? Yeah, it, the Shimano 12 speed equally the same. I'm supposed to have a bike coming with the new Campag on it, and mm. if so, that will probably require a mention for the group set because we haven't really covered that in such you know beyond that one ride that I had on the, the group set. Yeah, um, so from that point of view, I usually find that I just entirely leave that out because if someone is considering this bike. And it's their first time to try that group set. They're likely to look up our other content specifically about the group set. Yeah, it's a tough one on a seventh month old website because uh, in past <laughs> publications, and if you look at some of the uh, the other tech focused cycling publications, something like Bike Radar, for example, they'll actually when they do a bike review, they'll always link off to a separate review of the group set that's on that bike, and they they specifically go to pretty big efforts of trying to review every group set. So they can do that and keep you clicking around the website. Um, it's hard to do on a seven-month-old website. So, yeah, certainly with our reviews, we, we do try to mention our thoughts on the on the group sets because often we don't have a standalone review of that group set. So, Or, or we uh, used to and just we don't want to put people there anymore. And we, yeah, <laughs> uh, and those links don't work anymore. So, yeah, it's... Uh, anyway, it's, it's something that will probably change with time as we build out our back catalog of group set reviews and all that and hopefully it's something we can get better at but yeah for now we sort of still need to give our opinion on that group set because it's a key part of the bike that people want to know about in our reviews yeah well uh hopefully that answers your question uh and and muli i'm not really sure exactly how that's supposed to go like i said um but uh as always we're open to comments and suggestions and questions and that sort of thing so if you do have any uh, at least for this, I would say if you have any related questions to head over to escapecollective.com and find the associated post for this podcast and then leave us a comment there and we'll go ahead and answer your questions as soon as we can. Uh, further thought on, on how we test bikes. Sorry, I, I know James, you just moved on, but, uh, how you set it up in terms of fit is, is probably the biggest thing, um, uh, which we didn't touch on. So handlebar height makes a huge difference. Satellite, obviously saddle position. That's the stuff we, at least I certainly pay huge attention to and is very annoying with integrated cockpits nowadays in terms of being able to adjust the handlebar height on those. Um, I'm looking at a, a polygon that I've, I've currently am writing up and I had to 3D print spaces for it so I could uh, <laughs> adjust the handlebar height without having to cut the steerer tube. So not great. Uh, that is going in the review, but uh, anyway... Uh, I just assume everything's made of thermoplastic these days, and if I need to adjust the length, I just put it in the oven for a while and then just you know, nice. tweak it. Needed. <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. That, that's actually where I thought you were going earlier with changing the. I can't, I can't remember what way you mentioned, but you were saying eventually your point was you weren't trying to make a endurance bike and a race bike and so on and so forth. I thought you yeah. were going to say about um, adjusting the feel of the bike in terms of uh, felt, because that's actually one of the. That's probably one of the most frustrating things for me about the review. That I said that like it's a huge problem having to review these bikes. It's not. It's a fantastic thing to have to do. Uh, but more often than not, now these bikes are arriving with integrated cockpits and that, which 
more often than not also tend to be too short for me uh, or at least not my preferred length um and so yeah that's that's something i'm having to grapple with mm-hmm. and have have i have actually that that one's a bit of a difficult one for me also because if it's delivered as stock with say a 100 or a 110 mil stem but i need a 120 to get a proper feel for the bike then how much are you deviating from what the reader will will be purchasing yeah. usually i sort of if the brand offers a service to actually change the length of the handlebar i'm usually okay with it yeah or in other circumstances if it's just too short for me to be able to get a proper feel for the bike then i'll go ahead and request a, a longer stem or something like that but yeah it comes back to usually you don't really want to be getting into that kind of work because it is usually about 90 minutes per per job so oh, at least it's, it's sort of lucky, a last, last case scenario yeah that's if, if you don't connect the brakes yeah. yeah uh <laughs> no but that that sort of thing i feel like is always something i do uh, i try to mention with a review um but yeah in regards to the fit i'll usually put in a fair bit of time to make sure my saddle is where it needs to be um and then aside from there i'm a little bit more adaptable as far as the bar height and stem length and that sort of thing um but i usually well i think i pretty much always try to mention if it is uh, either difficult or challenging or maybe sometimes impossible to adjust things the way that someone might need to because that is worth mentioning um, yeah. because, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't think any of the three of us think that we're particularly special. Uh, and, and I think chances are if we run into an issue with fit or adjustment uh, in terms of in, in terms of how, how a bike is set up in terms of positioning – then the likelihood is pretty good that someone else would have a similar issue. Maybe not the exact same issue or the same direction or whatever, but um, yeah, it's not uncommon for people to need to adjust the fit of stuff. And if a bike makes that difficult to do so, then we will definitely mention as such. Yep. All right. Indeed. Well, moving on for real now, uh, let's finish up with a quick PSA here because we're running short on time. Um I have had in the last, well, definitely in the last few days and certainly in the last, uh, I guess, month or two or so, uh, a couple of unfortunate incidents, uh, thankfully not with myself personally, but uh, with either people that I know or some pretty good friends where we had some pretty bad injuries uh, out in the backcountry where they either had very minimal cell service or maybe none at all. Um, And I would say in both of those instances, those people had to be airlifted out. And also in both of those instances, had someone not been able to get help, uh, both of those people I'm pretty confident would be dead right now. Um, Hmm. So I have been thinking an awful lot recently about uh, kind of just backcountry preparedness in general. Uh, I mean, some of this may be a little bit a little bit more geared toward where I am because there is an awful lot of wide open space here in Colorado and in the surrounding area. And it doesn't, you don't really have to go all that far to be out someplace where you don't have any cell service. I mean, I can be out of cell service in 10 minutes from where I am. Um, um, But anyway, all of these things have got me thinking about two things in particular. One, uh, different means of satellite communication. Uh, I know some like like some newer, like I guess the latest iPhone supposedly has the ability to send for help uh, if you don't have a cell signal. Uh, a similar thing with the latest Apple Watch Ultra. Um, but I've also been looking into things like Garmin satellite communicators and that sort of thing. Um, mainly because I don't really ever, I don't ever want to be in a situation where I feel that helpless, where I can't call for help if something, if someone needed it. 
but the other half of that is um, I'm now looking into wilderness first aid courses because that mm. is probably even more important at that point because even if you can call for help, uh, by the time someone gets there, who knows how, who knows how quickly you can get there. But um, yeah, the chances are decent that you're going to have to stabilize someone yourself if someone can't get there quickly enough. Mm. This this really struck me when I broke my leg because where that happened, there was about 10 people around me within literally 10 seconds. But 10 minutes before that, had it happened where I was previously on that ride, it could have been days and there is no cell. cell. Uh, we call them phones over here. There's phone, no phone signal uh, in, in that area. Uh, and yeah, it really struck me at that time. And I, I remember thinking about that quite a lot, how... You know, unlucky it was to happen, but how lucky it, it was that it happened where where it did. Mm. Yeah, I've experienced that where I've come across like uh, it's not super backcountry, but back then there was no cell sig- signal. You know, we we're all running <coughs> Nokia and um, that kind of phone, and uh, yeah, having to ride like 10k up you know massive mountain range just to find a payphone kind of thing to to call an ambulance to come to come get a stranger. So uh, yeah, suddenly it's it does weigh on your mind when you're in those backcountry spaces. And I think fundamentally one, letting people know where you are and what time you'll be back at is probably step one. And then, yeah, I think James, uh, you're onto something there where it's, there's technology now that can actually get you out of these situations and are specifically created for these, these scenarios. And, uh, I think if you are putting yourself into these scenarios, it's probably pays to, to look into this technology and, and, you know, especially if you're always riding in a group in these scenarios and, uh, you know, you only need one of them amongst all of you. So. And I don't know about your area, but certainly where I am, you can lose phone signal quite often, mm-hmm. but you also pick it up quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always just automatically, whatever head unit I'm running does that whole email and text thing. Here's the route. You can track me on my ride to my wife and a couple of other people, I think. So, you know, while it might not be any help if you have an accident where you need phone coverage to send that signal, but also to make a call for help. And if you don't have it, you don't have it for both. But, you know, worst case scenario, at least there's a track guiding people to, as to your last known location. Yeah. Um, and and it's free to do if you've got both a phone and a head, head unit already with you. Yeah, yep, for sure. Yep. Yeah, but either way, like I said, I mean, it's just... These incidents over the last, uh, like I said, last few days and last couple months uh, have really got me thinking an awful lot about that sort of thing. Uh, mm. And yeah, I just for people listening, I suspect that I'm not alone uh, at all in that in being in those situations every now and then. Uh, so yeah, I just want to put that in the back of people's minds or the front of people's minds, as the case may be, uh, to maybe just think about that and you know whether or not you should consider uh, investing in some sort of backcountry communication device or, you know, some sort of wilderness first aid course or something like that. Because, uh, as certainly as I'm, as I'm feeling right now, like I said, if I was ever in a situation where someone I was with got hurt and one, I couldn't call for help and two, didn't know what to do. And that person didn't make it. I'm not sure I'd ever forgive myself. So that's a proper PSA, James. Wow. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Uh, well, that (laughs) seemed like a, like a good place to wrap things up. 
Uh, as always, thanks for listening to the Geek Warning Podcast. We always appreciate our, all of our listeners here. Uh, if you're not already an Escape Collective member, please go ahead and do so. Uh, it does It is how we fund everything here at Escape Collective. Uh, another thing, speaking of podcast and funding, uh, Ronan, you just wrapped up recording of your second episode, I believe, of your Performance Process Podcast. So if you haven't signed up for that one yet, that is a paid podcast that is uh, available to our members only. So you can check that out. You can also check out a, a truncated version of that on the main Escape Collective feed. That's out on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, and then we are actually also going to be launching soon a paid version of Geek Warning too. Uh, still working out the details on that one, but that's going to be coming pretty soon. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, in the meantime... Thanks as always for listening. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review on iTunes. So I have noticed those numbers bumping up. So thanks to everyone who has left a review lately. Uh, but in the meantime, that's all we've got for today. And we'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.